Morning. Okay, we are still in the book of Matthew, and we are still in that section where we're covering uh, the crucifixion. We're still in the, in the mini-series, if you will, uh, called The Great Betrayal. Um, today I titled the message, His Darkest Hours. Okay, now we will get up to the death of, of Jesus, but we won't get any farther than that, and we'll be lucky to get to that. But I'm going to give you a brief, uh, brief recap, as brief as I can possibly do. So this might sound like one of those commercials where they, you know, they read the disclaimers really, really fast. Do you ever see those? Yeah, don't buy anything from them. But anyway, um, I'm going to give you just a brief uh, recap. Last week we discussed you know, the cruelty uh, and the um, brutality involved in the crucifixion. Uh, and we learned that the Jewish leaders were manipulating the crowd to anger during this whole process so that they couldn't really feel any, you know, sympathy for Jesus. Uh, and they even, you know, manipulated them to the point that the same people who were crying out, Hosanna, save us, were now, you know, mocking and ridiculing him while he was being crucified innocently. Um, but we did discuss it last week that, that Jesus was not a victim because uh, he was a willing sacrifice. He remained in complete control through the whole process, and we got to see that through some of the decisions he made while on the cross. Uh, one, making sure his mother was taken care of. You remember which apostle he turned his mother over to? John, that's right. Remember, John even referred to himself as the one he loved, which I still think is funny. But, um, uh, and the other thing he did while he was on the cross was he, uh, he made sure that the man who was being crucified with him, who was searching for grace, received that. Now, this week, that's as fast as I can catch up on last week, but this week we're going to take a look at the events in the very last hours, the very last moments uh, of his life. And we're going to discover that every word he spoke was intentional, and every word he, uh, word he spoke was, was selfless, right? And we'll see how carefully, even while on the cross, he was trying to direct people to go back to Scripture and, and look at the Scripture. Because when they looked at the Scriptures, it would contain all the evidence they needed that he was indeed right, the Messiah. Now, um, you're going to see that, you know, dis despite this being his darkest hours, he still kept his focus on humanity being uh, number one. So let's, let's jump in here. Okay, Matthew 27. It says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Uh, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this darkness is so significant, okay? And I think a lot of times we read right, right past this, okay? But when this was literal darkness. Darkness literally fell upon the land. And that darkness had so many purposes, I'm going to mention three things that were significant about it, but it was very, very significant. And the first thing is that this darkness represented the judgment of the world that had fell on Jesus. Okay, God wanted them to literally see the darkness of the sin of the world that, that he was carrying for us. If you look at Isaiah 53, 6, it prophesies uh, about him carrying that it says all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned his own way but the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to what to fall on him so when that darkness happened one thing that that represented was this is god saying this this is the sin that he's taking to the cross for you the blackness the darkness the depth of the sin that he is carrying to the cross for you is as dark as what you see around you right now. Right now, I want you to imagine what this was like for God during this time. 
Okay, because I think it also kind of describes God emotion, God's emotions during this time. Because God couldn't even look at Jesus as his son during this time. He couldn't even look at him like that. I mean, he couldn't offer him comfort. He couldn't embrace him. He couldn't take the pain away. He couldn't do any of those things that a good father does for their son. He couldn't do those things because, because Jesus had become sin for us. Now, I want you to realize how this must have felt, right? Because sometimes I think we make God so impersonal, and that's not the God we serve, right? Think about it. As parents, when your children hurt, and you learn from when they're babies, you say, oh, that's a hurt cry. How many people know what I'm talking about? The hurt cry versus the hungry cry versus just crying for the heck of it, right? But we, we establish which one is about pain right away. And all we want to do when our children are hurting is take that pain, don't we? We just want to take that pain away from them so they don't have to suffer, right? And this is what God was feeling. But he couldn't do anything about it because Jesus literally became our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I think the first thing that darkness represented was God saying, this is what your hearts look like. This is what your sin looks like. This is what I see when I see that. Right? Now, the second thing that the darkness represented was the spiritual condition of the world. Because the world was definitely spiritually dark at that time, especially in the Roman Empire. But I think what was really distressing was not only was the, was the, the world spiritually dark at that time, God's own people had become spiritually dark at this time his own people those called by his name right and that darkness was so powerful and it overtaken them so deeply that they couldn't even comprehend light anymore they couldn't see the true light of god when it was standing right in front of them he was the light of the world and they couldn't even recognize him because that's how dark their spiritual condition was John describes Jesus in John chapter 1, starting in verse 4. He says, in him, this is Jesus, was life. And the life was what? The light of men. Now listen to this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not what? Comprehend it. The darkness was the spiritual condition of not just the world, but of Israel, his own people. Okay, now it's important you understand that that same darkness still exists. And I thought a lot about this when I was preparing this, and, it, and, it, and God spoke to me so many times preparing just this message. Especially when I was thinking about that darkness that still exists right now. The same darkness that, that came upon the earth for three hours at that time still exists because if you sin, if you allow sin in your life, and we all sin, let's just be honest right? All of a sin. But when you allow it to hang around, and you know what I mean by hang around? Where you know it's wrong, but maybe you're justifying it, or, you know, maybe you're trying to ignore the fact that it's sin because you just don't want to let go of it right now. You know what I mean? When you allow sin to hang around in your life, this same darkness will start to creep into your life, right? And I have seen this happen with believers time and time again. 
and they allow these little things, and we don't think of them as, 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 as dark as other sins. But they'll get angry at somebody and not forgive them and let that hang around. You ever had anger just hanging around inside of you? Or bitterness. How many people have been bitter towards somebody? I deal with this all the time with people. Christian people. Somebody hurts their feelings. Somebody you know, says something that made them feel belittled or, or condescended or whatever. And, and instead of talking to them like God says to do, we start to feel that bitterness. And when you allow bitterness to hang around in you, it makes you get dark. Envy is another one. You ever allowed envy to creep into your life? A lot of people say, oh, I'm never envious of anybody. Uh, I'd, I'd love to test you on that theory. Right, we all get envious sometimes. Greed, all these sins that we allow just to sit around in our life, we allow them to hang around, start to bring darkness into our hearts. And before long, the next thing you'll notice is that it's hard to feel anything remotely close to a blessing when you're allowing darkness to remain in your life. The darkness that the Jews allowed to remain in their lives made them want to kill their Savior. That's what happens when it's left undealt with in your life. They wanted to kill their Savior. And when we leave that darkness, it's amazing how it just changes everything. Even our own personality, it changes us. Have you ever been just angry at the world, even since you've been a believer, or just upset and always depressed? And the root of it is something that you have not cleansed out of your life. There's a sin you haven't confessed and whether it be, you know, you're still bitter, angry, and sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it kind of feels good to stay mad at somebody, doesn't it? Because you feel like you're punishing them. You ever notice that? You feel like you are punishing them when you allow bitterness and anger to stay in your life. When in reality, they have no idea, right? You're just making yourself a prisoner to the darkness. The same darkness that appeared in the world. And as long as that darkness is taking over your life and putting out your light in front of other people, you are just worthless to God. I just threw that in on a side note because, you know, we look back at that and say, oh, wow, they were in dark spiritual condition. Hey, we can be there, right? So that's, that's another thing. The third thing is that this darkness really was a fulfillment of prophecy, and you're going to see a lot of fulfillment in prophecy here at the crucifixion because Jesus had to make sure that every prophecy of the Messiah he fulfilled. Right? Look at this in Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It said, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, uh, the day of the Lord. In the warriors, uh, I'm sorry, in it the warriors cries out bitterly. Who's that? Jesus, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is in that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of what? Darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, Zechariah didn't even realize that he was prophesying about the crucifixion. Right? Now, here's the thing. The Jews should have been able to recognize what was going on. That darkness should have flipped a switch for them, if you will. That darkness, they should have thought about this prophecy when the world went dark. Because they knew the prophecies better than anyone else. But it wasn't just the, the, the physical world that had become dark. It was 
they were dark in their own hearts and couldn't see it. They should have recognized that. They should have seen that. Right? And, and it wasn't just, the darkness didn't just affect the people watching the crucifixion, uh, crucifixion. It actually, it affected Jesus. Okay, because think about this. Remember we said this is the first time that Jesus was not able to feel the presence of God. This was the first time that he wasn't able to lean on his Father for help and deliverance and guidance. This is the first time that he was completely and utterly separated from God. And this was the darkest hours of his life. I don't think we realize this, but when he cried out to God, that was a genuine cry of, of, of anguish and loneliness and pain. He was completely abandoned by the one thing that had always been with him, the presence of God. Again, in Psalm 22, remember I told you to remember that psalm because it talks so much about the crucifixion. It talks about this, Psalm 22.1 says, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Okay, so this was a legitimate, I mean, just the anguish that he was bringing out here because he couldn't feel the presence of God. Now, I want to take a look at the way he addressed God here when he was crying out to him. Matthew 27, 46 again, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus called God Father, or my Father, 170 times in the Gospels. 21 of those were during prayer. The rest of those were just how he addressed God. That's how he spoke of God was as his Father. But for the first time, he referenced God judicially rather than intimately. Notice he cried out, my God, my God, not my father or father, like he normally cried out. Why would he address God judicially rather than intimately? And the answer is pretty simple, because in this instance, God acted as his judge, not as his loving father. He could not treat him like a loving father. Him Here he had to be his judge. Imagine the pain that brought into his life, especially it should affect us because God was judging him for our sin. He went through all that for us. Because sometimes, I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but sometimes I feel like we talk about the crucifixion like, yeah, you know, Jesus came, died, and rose again, and I'm saved. I don't think we, we understand or appreciate what that really entailed, what he really went through. How many people here like to be accused of something they're innocent of? Anybody? How many people want to be killed for that? In prison for that. This is what he was dealing with for us. That just shows you the depth of his love. Okay, now, as he's crying these things out, there are people standing around. Now realize, all the people that were watching this were either Romans who just loved to watch cruel things, or Jews who wanted to see Jesus punished. So they were looking for reasons to torment him. Right? So some of them misunderstand, misunderstood what he said here. Right? Look at this, Matthew 27, 47. It says, some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet who? Elijah. Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed 
uh, stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes and saves him. Okay, now, sour wine, we talked about this last week, was just a cheap vinegar wine that mainly poor people drank. It was like Mad Dog 2020, I don't know. Right? It, was, it was the cheap stuff, Wild Irish Rose. Right? I only know about those because Kevin told me about them, that's why. <laughs> but it was cheap, cheap wine. But one thing that history tells us, and, and at least they, they claimed, that it was relatively effective in, in quenching thirst readily available, right? So when he was crying out, when he was, when he was yelling out and, and calling out for Elijah, some people probably heard him wrong because think about it. He, had, he was probably pretty weak at that time. He was in a lot of pain. He was probably very distressed at that time. So it was probably hard to understand it because sometimes when we're crying out in anguish, it's hard to hear what we're saying. Right? So some people didn't understand what he was saying. And in the Hebrew, Eli, Eli, or I think they would pronounce it Eloi, Eloi, it sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for Elijah. Right? So they thought he was calling for Elijah to come and save him from the cross. That's what a lot of them thought. Right? So as they, one person finally has compassion and, and fills a sponge with this vinegar wine and takes it over to him, and one of them says, wait, 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 don't give him that yet. Let's see if Elijah really does come and help him. Let's see if Elijah really does come and save him. Now listen, they didn't believe Elijah was going to come. They were trying to prove to everyone that he was a phony. See, they thought he was calling out to Elijah, and they're saying, wait, 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 I'll show you he's not who he says he is. Don't give him anything yet. Let him keep calling out. And when Elijah doesn't show up, they'll realize that he's a phony. That's why they did that. They were hoping to prove that he wasn't who he said he was. They wanted to prove he was a phony. No compassion, just, hey, don't give him that yet. Let's see. Let's see if Elijah actually does come to save him. Now, how, how dark does someone heart, someone's heart have to be when a dying man cries out for just, just something to drink, as we'll see here in a minute? How dark does your heart have to be to say, don't, don't give him that yet? You know, but not only that, just, just with the hope of proving him wrong. And what they didn't realize was they were about to get all the proof they would ever want. They were about to get that. Right? Now let's move on. Matthew twenty-seven fifty. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now let's look at that one more time. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and what? Yielded up his spirit. That means that he surrendered his life. Voluntarily surrendered his life. Okay, now, Matthew only gives us a glimpse here. I don't know why Matthew doesn't go into more detail in the crucifixion. There's some things, you know, in his gospel he goes into more detail on. But the crucifixion, maybe it was something that bothered him so bad and he thought most people had seen it or witnessed it. He, maybe that's why he didn't record a lot. But he just didn't give us a lot of detail here. So let's take a look at what John said about this because there's a lot of really important things that happened here that Matthew just didn't tell us about. John nineteen twenty eight says, After this, Jesus, knowing all things, if you're following along in your Bible, underscore that, knowing all things, underscore all things, had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Right? And a jar full of sour wine was, was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine 
upon a hyssop branch and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Is it just me or is there some really important things there that Matthew didn't tell us? I mean, there's some really important points that he, that he chose not to put in there. Right? Now, these words, it is finished, are so significant. I, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Because I literally looked at my outline on Wednesday and thought, I'm going to preach for 24 hours if I don't do something here. Okay? There's so much about those three words. It is finished. So much. That, I mean, I just can't cover all of it. But there's one thing that really stood out to me. And I want to cover that. And we'll cover a, couple, you know, a few other things, too. It said that Jesus knew that he had finished everything that God required of him. He knew that. Right? He knew that everything that God wanted, he did. So after making that determination, it's important that we realize he surrendered his life or he chose to die. He chose to die. And here's why that's so important. Jesus actually died earlier than most people do when they're crucified. Some people would hang around for a long time. Remember what they would do if they hung around too long? Break their legs, right? But Jesus, he died sooner than a lot of people did. Right now, that probably didn't make sense to a lot of people who didn't understand what was going on. Because we're talking, this is the only sinless God-man to ever live. I'm going to go out on a limb here and think he might have been the healthiest dude walking around. What do you think? Right? He was all God and all man. He was probably healthy. He was young. He was in his 30s, which I used to think was old. Now I think that is way young. Right? So he's a young man. He's in great shape, yet he didn't last that long. He had to be stronger than everybody up there, but he didn't last that long. And people always say, well, why? Well, according to prophecy, there's two reasons that Jesus died when he did. And the first reason Jesus explains himself in John chapter 10. Look at this, John chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I what? I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Okay, pay careful attention to that because I lay down my life. I surrender my life so that I may take it up again. Listen to this. No one has what? No one has taken it away from me. Okay, very important words. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. That's very important. What commandment? That, that no one take his life from him. God commanded that. He, gave, he had the authority to lay his life down. He had the authority to take it up again. But God commanded that no one was going to take his life. God flat out said that his death had to be his choice. It had to be voluntary. It had to be. Right? And as we said last week, Jesus had to be a willing sacrifice or this whole thing falls apart. Okay, He can't be tricked or, or trapped or forced to die or this doesn't work. He has to be a willing sacrifice. Now think about this. If the Romans or the Jews had finished him off, people may have questioned that passage. People may have questioned that claim. Because he said, no man takes my life. I 
lay it down. Right? So Jesus chose when it was time to surrender his life. Now think about this. He could have come off that cross at any time. He could have come off that cross and been totally healthy and healed if he wanted. He could have done anything. He was all God and all man. But he chose when to surrender his life. And that's one of the reasons I think he made this statement. Was he wanted people to know, I see everything that I was sent to do. It's done. Now I am ending it. I am accepting death now. It's my choice. It is finished. It's time for me to lay down my life. So that means that, I mean, realistically, the Romans and the Jews, they actually didn't kill him. Now, did they get the ball rolling? Yeah, I think that's pretty obvious, right? But he said, no man takes my life. They didn't kill him. They just started the ball rolling. Only Jesus had the power to lay down his life. No one could take that from him. Okay, so that's one reason he died when he did. The second reason is found in Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 19. It says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is not one of them is broken. So it was prophesied that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. None of them. Now we talked about this. If they thought you were lingering too long, and some people did, they would break their legs so they could no longer stand up and get breath. It would make them die quicker. And they used an iron club. I mean, the cruelty just blows my mind. They would literally, probably compound fracture, I imagine, getting hit with an iron club by trained soldiers. You know, they would break their legs. God couldn't allow that to happen to Jesus. That could not happen to his son. Because that would disqualify him as the Messiah because he couldn't fulfill that prophecy anymore. So he had to make sure that he died on his own time. Right? His own time. It's funny, every part of this crucifixion was a fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, even the little things, down to asking for a drink. I mean, down to that very thing. Did you ever wonder why he said, I am thirsty? Isn't that random? Look at all the things he's suffering right now. Is thirst going to be the top of your list? Think about this. You have spikes through your wrists, through the arches of your feet. You're, You're asphyxiating. Right? Your heart is enlarging and filling with fluid. You're being tortured. You're being ridiculed. How many people would go, well, I want a drink? I mean, it just seems random. But even down to him saying, I am thirsty, was important in fulfilling prophecy. There was a messianic prophecy in Psalm 69, 21. It said, but instead they give me uh, poison for food. They offer me what? Sour wine for my thirst. Even down to asking for that drink, he knew they would offer him sour wine, the drink of the poor. And that would fulfill that prophecy. Right? I mean, it's just amazing. Every last bit, every last piece was fulfilling some kind of prophecy. Now, they put it on a sponge, probably because they intended for it to wet his lips. Right? But it's irrelevant. At this point, he knew everything had been completely accomplished. So he made that final statement that Matthew left out of his account. account. I mean, he says, it 
is finished and he surrendered his life. Now, it is finished. There are, those are like three of the most powerful words Jesus ever spoke in his entire ministry because it just entails so much, right? And those words in the Greek are pronounced teleo. Now, I'm sure you've heard people say it's pronounced some way different, but that they're, they're reading the English rendering of it. It's actually pronounced teleo. And the literal definition, a lot of people say, oh, it means paid in full. Actually, it doesn't. I mean, but they're not, I mean, they're not wrong, per se. It just doesn't mean that. Okay, it means to bring to a successful conclusion. That's what that word means. It is finished. In the Greek, it means to bring to a successful conclusion. This is what the Jews would say when they finished a, a financial deal. Teleo. It's been brought to a successful conclusion. When they uh, worked out a partnership or a business deal, they would finish with teleo. It means it was brought to a successful conclusion. And if you think about it, I don't know if that word applies better to anyone than Jesus because he accomplished absolutely everything God required to give eternal life to whoever would ask. He accomplished that in 33 years. I think he had the right above all to say, Teleo, it is finished. Because he brought the plan of God, I mean, God's plan of salvation, he brought that to a successful conclusion. And I don't think we understand how much that entails. Now, I know I'm throwing a ton of facts at you, but that's just how we're going to have to roll during this. There's a lot more than I'm actually giving you. Okay? I want to take a look at at what he meant here when he said when he knew all things were accomplished. When he knew all things had been accomplished. Those all things, I'm just going to talk about three of the things, and they're huge, that fall under that all things had been accomplished. Right now, if you'll remember, Jesus explained his purpose early in his ministry. Look at John four thirty-one. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? The disciples are so clueless, weren't they? I mean, that, you know, we, we can't really laugh at him because so are we. You know, honestly, so are we. But, you know, he's talking about something spiritual and they're going, oh, he's mad because nobody packed his lunch. <laughs> they totally missed it here, right? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food, I love this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish what? His work. My food is to accomplish God's work. Right? So the work that God gave him to do to accomplish, there were three main things that he had to accomplish. And I don't want to minimalize this, but there were three main things that he had to accomplish. And the first was called propitiation. How many people have heard of that word? You better raise your hands. It's all over the New Testament. Okay, propitiation, right? That was one of the things that had to be accomplished. And propitiation simply means to satisfy wrath by sacrifice. To satisfy wrath by sacrifice. That, that's what that means. Okay, now the ancient Greeks, the pagans, they used this word very specifically. Okay, because this is what it meant in the Greek. To them, it meant sacrificing something to appease the gods so that they might be placed back in their favor again. That's how they used that word. 
satisfying their gods by giving something up, by sacrificing something, by doing something huge so that that God would see them and maybe his wrath would be satisfied and maybe they'd get back in his good graces again. Right, But that, that's not how it applies to God, because first of all, God's not a Greek mythological figure. right? And, and second of all, God doesn't hold grudges. Okay, So that's not how it applies to God. He's a loving creator, and he desires this personal relationship. But that being said, he is a righteous and just God. A righteous and just God. And that means he can't just leave sin unpunished. He can't do that, or he would not be just. If you look in Romans 6.23, just the first part there, it says, for the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Okay, and that word death means separation. That's what death means, separation. You know, physically, when we die, we are separated from the physical realm. If you die and you haven't made your life right with God, if you haven't believed, you'll be separated from God. That's what death means, is separation, Right? The punishment for death, I mean, the punishment for sin was death. I mean, that's just what it was. So someone had to make propitiation. Someone had to satisfy that. Someone had to do that, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He offered himself to satisfy the debt of sin, which was death. If you look at 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And notice immediately afterwards, he says, and if anyone sins, because he knew nobody was capable of that. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is what? Okay, come on. I know this is the morning crowd. Right? And he himself is what? The propitiation. Now, Calvinists hate this part, but I'm going to say it anyway. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I got the mic. But Calvinists hate this part. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only. You ready for this? But also for those of what? The whole world. In the Greek, that means cosmos. That's the word cosmos. You know what that means? The whole world. (laughs) That's what it means. I was hoping you'd stay with me there. So he's saying that even people who don't accept the payment, their propitiation was still made for them. They may not accept it, but it was made. Okay, that, that's huge. Okay, so this is, this is what Jesus did. One of the three things that I'm going to talk to you about, he had to finish, that God sent him to do was to make propitiation. Now, the second work that, uh, of God he had to accomplish is called redemption. Look at Ephesians 1.7. It says, in him we have what? redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace now in the greek the word redeem means to set free or to liberate that's what it means right and this word was often used uh, in relation to purchasing a slave's freedom that's how they use this word a lot in, in greek they this when they would use this they were usually talking about finding what the price was to pay for a slave's freedom. Okay, pretty simple, right? They had to pay that price. But listen, it gets a little complicated because there's only one price that can be paid to redeem someone from sin. It's different. There's only one thing that can pay that, right? Because, listen to this, 
Sin separates, separates us or, or brings death, right? So the only cure for death is what? Life. Right? The only cure for death is life. And the only life-giving force in every human is what? It's blood. Come on, man. Listen, you can live without food for a while. I've never tried it, nor do I want to. But I think they said uh, the people in the IRA made it like, what was it on that hunger strike, 52 or 62 days without food? I don't care enough about much to do that, I'm just saying. But they made it that long. You can make it, what, three or four days without water? Drain all the blood out of you. How long are you going to make it? Yeah, you're done before it even gets out of you. Blood is the life-giving force in humanity. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is what? Is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to do what? To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So basically God is saying the only way to make atonement, the only way to pay for freedom for someone who is in the bondage of sin is they have to be paid for with blood. Life has to be given. Right? Now, in the Old Testament, there were animals being slaughtered everywhere. And that would, that would cover their sin temporarily because the reason it was temporary was because that animal was temporary. It was going to die sooner or later. It could not bring eternal redemption. But it would cover it for a time. Right? The only way it was going to bring eternal redemption was if somehow... There was a way to make blood eternal. Gee, how could we do that? Maybe if we were all God and all man in one body, then the blood in that body would be eternal because God was there, right? That's what happened in the person of Jesus Christ, right? When he allowed those soldiers to take him and put him on that cross, and when that blood started to flow, when they drove those spikes through, that was a willing act of mercy, love, and grace for us. That was a willing act because he wanted to redeem us, and the only way to redeem us was through that blood. That was it. That had to happen. The third and final work I'll talk about today that, that God told Jesus he had to accomplish is called reconciliation. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5.18. It said, Now... All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through, through Christ. Now, the reason I, I really push that is there are still a lot of people out there that think they're going to heaven because they've done something right. You know, I am so thankful that's not what's required, aren't you? Let's just be honest. Is there anybody here that's comfortable enough with their righteousness to roll the dice and use that instead of the sacrifice that Christ made? There isn't, right? So, uh, through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though we were making an appeal, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, the Greek word here for reconcile means to bring, I love this, to bring into a changed condition. To change completely. Okay, to bring into a changed condition, to change 
completely. So to reconcile us, Jesus had to bring us into a changed condition. Okay, now, the only way that it's possible to bring us into a completely changed condition is if there was an internal intervention from God. That's the only way that can happen. And I, how many people have witnessed that change in someone? Have you seen that change in someone before? It's amazing when you see how God brings someone to a changed condition. The only way that can happen is it has to be done internally, and it's an intervention from God himself. Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit, capital S, what are we talking about here? The Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who what? Dwells in you. When we believe, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we believe, God places a piece of himself inside us called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what ushers that change that happens inside of us. Right? You know that when you do something and you're like, I shouldn't have done that? You know that feeling? That's, people say, oh, it's just my conscience. No, that's the Holy Spirit. When you talk behind somebody's back and something inside you says you shouldn't be doing that, that's the Holy Spirit. He's trying to bring you to a complete changed condition. Now, there is this one immediate change condition that happens. The moment you believe, you are guaranteed eternal life. You are a being that is promised eternal life. That's one complete change that's happened in you. But the rest happens kind of gradually, doesn't it? Right? And I don't know about you guys, but it always happens with me one beating at a time. Is that how it happens to you guys? Whew, good. That sounded terrible, but good. Because I had to learn that I can't say that. And it wasn't because one of the deacons at the church came up and said, yeah, according to the rules, you can't say that. That's not why. When I said something I wasn't supposed to say, the Holy Spirit reminded me immediately. That's not who we are anymore. I'm trying to bring you to a changed condition. Right? That's how God brings us to that reconciliation through the Holy Spirit. And the moment He moves into our hearts... Everything changes. I love this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? You guys, it's going to be on here in a minute. Okay, it wasn't up there yet? (laughs) Then it's on with you. Everybody look back there with a dirty look. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Okay, let's try that again. All right, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone... Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, what? New things have come. That is what he's talking about here. That is bringing us to a changed condition. (laughs) That that is redemption. Oh, man. I swear. I should have paid more attention, shouldn't I? Anyway, so... These are the three things that he was talking about. I mean, to sum it up, these three things. These are the three things that Jesus said, they're all done. I've done all of them. Through my life, through my death, and my coming, burial, and resurrection, I'm fulfilling all those things. All things that needed to be done. All the things that God sent me to do, I have done. Now it's time to lay down my life. And he laid down his life. Right? And 
What happens next is some of the most awesome parts of Scripture ever. How many people are familiar with what happens after the death? Oh, man. There is so much to learn in this section. There is so much here. There are so many things that are significant that we look right past, and we are not going to look at any of them this week, but we will talk about them next week. I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, would you please bow your heads? this is your first time we like to do an invitation and i say this every week but i don't do the kind of invitation where i have you come up front uh, i don't chase you down after church i don't sick the deacons on you honestly i just remember being that person who was trying to put it all together in my mind i remember sitting out there trying to rationalize why a righteous God would want anything to do with me. I didn't know anything about the Bible other than I broke about everything in it. That's about all I knew. But I remember when the pastor said, listen, let's just let's just make that first step and admit you need him. And the moment I did that, it changed everything. So I've always been determined to always make that same offer to others. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, listen, I just want to pray for you. Because that one man praying for me and the people in that congregation that were praying for me changed everything. If you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. Bless those people. If you're listening online, bless those people. If you're, if you're listening online or watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But listen, God has this desire to love you and embrace you as his own. He's not trying to make you earn it. He's just trying to make you accept it. He's got this offer out there, this free offer saying, just let me love you and bring you to heaven with me. There's no reason to leave this world without it. And believers, I've seen enough darkness in Christians to last me a lifetime. I've seen enough bickering. I've seen enough church splits. I've seen enough denominational battles. I've seen enough of it to last a lifetime. We have got to do better. I I hope every church that's teaching the truth is blessed. I hope every believer that loves God is blessed. We don't have time to let that darkness settle in our life. There are people that need to hear about Jesus. I want to pray for us that we get back to what we were left here to do. Be a light to those who are in darkness. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you, God, that you love us not because of what we do and because of who we are, but in spite of what we do and in spite of who we are. None of us deserve heaven, God. And we can be saved 20 years and live the best spiritual life we can, and we still don't deserve it. We know, Lord, that if we're going to get there, we'll get there through faith alone in you. What your son Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, and the moment we believed in that, that's what, That's what bought our ticket. You paid that price, Lord. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, I just pray that whatever's at 
that's hindering them, they would push it aside and just trust that what your son did was enough to guarantee their eternal life. And your word promises that they do that, they'll have it. Lord, we always say this, but we really want them to, to find a good Christian person or a good Christian institution, reach out to us, someone here. If you're listening from a long ways away, we want them to find someone there. We want them to immediately find someone to hold them accountable, to pray with them, to get them started. And God, for those of us who are believers, don't let us be the Christians that just go through the motions. Don't let us be the Christians that allow sin to hang around and bring darkness into our lives and our hearts. God, one thing I hope that we all take from studying this crucifixion is that you paid such a great price because you wanted us to have eternal life and you didn't want us bickering and arguing. You wanted us to share that same message with others so that they could have it too. We don't care what people think of us. We don't care about being looked at as holy and righteous. We want them to look at you as the holy and the righteous one that guarantees eternal life. Let us reflect you. Let us be those ambassadors. We just pray, God, that as we leave here today, you would keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us be excited about coming together and praising you and glorifying you one more time. We just thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.